Welcome to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin. And I'm Anthony. And today we're going to get back to the theme of the show. So we talked about in our very first episode how we don't really like the phrase it is what it is uh, for a lot of different reasons and how it's used. But today we're going to try and paint it in a positive light or at least share someone's view who thought of it maybe in a positive light. And that's Friedrich Nietzsche. So today's topic is about amor fatigue. But to get to that topic, we have to get a little bit deeper into the background into his philosophy of ressentment. So sorry for the technical jargon, but it's really hard to translate these terms. And so we're gonna spell it out in uh, dialogue. So Nietzsche was uh, insightful in pointing out how in, in older times where people had power, they just exerted their power over others. So the, the nobles, the powerful lords, warlords, they just kind of exerted their will and went through villages and took what they wanted women, resources, uh, land, whatever. And uh, there was this reactionary uh, principle that he wanted to point out that those that didn't have power and couldn't just exert themselves against the nobles had a way of shaping social customs and shaping our social relationships by using guilt to make the powerful feel like they ought to treat other human beings with respect and use guilt to, to generate values for things like generosity and kindness and meekness and humility and these kind of uh, things that we think of as morals, part of our basic morality, uh, Nietzsche shows that they weren't uh, intrinsic to the powerful when they first came on the scene. And so this principle of, of transforming our values through identifying things that would help make life less suffering, cause less suffering for the weak uh, he ident identifies this motivating kind of principle as ressentiment, which you might think resentment, and there is a little bit of this, well, if they're the weaker, they probably resented the stronger. But but really what he's saying is that they reassigned the values. They changed which values were important to society. And they were able to do that because since they didn't have the power to react and retaliate, they brooded. You know, they, they thought, how can I avoid this suffering again? How can I... Uh, making a life easier than it has been under the, the hardships caused by these strong, powerful warlords and nobles. And so by transforming the values around them, they started identifying ways, well, if we all work together, if we all believed in social cooperation and kindness, then everybody's life would be better, except the, the nobles would be a little bit uh, worse off, but they'd still be pretty good, right? So changing the values was, was this mode of thinking through our suffering and figuring out ways to assign blame and assign guilt so that we could get other people to cooperate with with uh, something that worked for for us being the weaker the weaker people so this was kind of an observation he had made right it's not like he's saying like you should do this and then this this will change in you but it's more like he's noticing that this is a way of deferment for making them feel a little bit better about their situation yeah, right. He was uh, trained in the classics and noticed a big shift in the Greek uh, values from from ancient Greek, classical Greek, into the more Christian age. And this is what he identified as kind of the Christian movement was changing all the values so that love, neighborly love, was more important than something like honor. And I really like this topic because, uh, you know, we talked about the two sides of narrative being, you know, contamination and redemption. And this kind of fits into that contamination style. And like, but in this case, I know it's not a narrative perspective, but 
you know, in this case, instead of you being the one that's contaminated, you're kind of passing that contamination to other things so that you can then have some some sort of power in your life. And I think we hear this and see this literally all the time. You know, I use that example of the coworker who's kind of bitter about the world around them. Um, and when, you know, when we're in our job normally and something happens, you know, it's very easy for us as people to just be like, uh, you know, that's not really my fault. It was because this email thing didn't work out or because, you know, this tool I'm working on didn't function properly. Um, and to tie into the basketball, you can literally hear this every single time there's a player interview. They never say, you know, I messed up these plays here and this led to these results. It's always like, you know, we didn't execute as a team, kind of passing the blame from themselves to their teammates. Or, you know, the other team performed better than us. They executed better. Um, so you hear these kinds of terms. And it's just second nature. I don't think that anybody does this intentionally. Um, but you definitely do see evidence for this exact, uh, this exact phenomenon. And I think, uh, didn't LeBron say something very recently? Yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Right after uh, recording our last episode, uh, the MVP votes came out for the regular season. And as expected, Giannis won first and LeBron took second. And I think everybody kind of expected it to go that way. But LeBron only got 16 first place votes. And I think people thought it was going to be a little bit closer of a vote. And so they asked LeBron, what did he think about, about the results? And he said, honestly, I'm pissed. I'm pissed. 16? I'm pissed. Uh, does anybody ever really watch the game anymore? Or is it all just about the narrative? Right? And so we were just talking about how narratives shape the way that we pick out are the things that we value and how we understand the the league and and players, and and LeBron's like calling that out and saying, it's not my play and it's not Giannis's great play that that got him that MVP. It's that there's these narratives, and he's like, I come out second all the time. Like I'm I'm consistently second, which should say that I should have a lot more firsts. Um, so he didn't exactly put it that way, but it was implied in in his. I always get second. Um, so you could see a little bit of Rassalmo there in saying, okay, not only am I not being valued for the, not, not only am I kind of feeling cheated for not getting enough votes, but there's a reason why. And it's this whole idea of media narrative. Media narrative is to blame for my poor luck in, in not getting recognition. Do you think it would have been um, <clears throat> less apparent if he had said like Giannis deserves it like in that whole quote that you provided he doesn't really even acknowledge Giannis as up to that level yeah I mean he doesn't disparage Giannis and you get the sense that probably he isn't too upset that Giannis got the MVP so much as he feels like he was being disrespected um, but what really seems to be at stake is his legacy. Like he's less focused on this MVP with with Giannis in this competition than maybe the long-term competition with with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and some of these other greats and feeling like, hey, my legacy is going to be tarnished because of your media narratives. And so there does seem to be um, some blame casting and trying to retell his own story uh, by shifting the narrative himself. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, like you said, we had just talked about this last week, <laughs> and <laughs> and here here is that theme. Uh, but also, you know, we were just like, let's bring it back to it is what it is, and and then the same theme pops right back up. I'm I'm kind of amazed <laughs> by it, <laughs> and uh, right. I don't think I've 
thought of LeBron as the kind of person, you know, when I talked about like player interviews, I hardly ever see him in that light of like, you know, of blaming others for things, um, except for, I guess, you could see it in the actions, you know, and I wonder if actions take part of this this concept of resentment and later amorphity. Um, because uh, the reason why I said that is his actions are like he left Cleveland because he he felt he didn't have support. You know, I've taken this team as far as I can take it, and you guys aren't holding up your end of the bargain. You know, he never actually said any of this, but this is what like the narrative of him and the actions of him have been. He got what he wanted in Miami, so he went back to Cleveland to try and you know redeem himself. He did it. And uh, you could even argue that even though, like, they went to four straight finals, they only got one championship out of it, and Kyrie Irving left the year after they got the championship. So I feel like there's probably a little bit, and there actually might be resentment, like actual resentment, (laughs) um, (laughs) in his actions of, like, you know, I've done what I needed to do here, now I can go to, to L.A. and... Uh, and go to the next chapter or, you know, find the super team that I've always desperately wanted. Yeah, I think this is a good point to switch over to more fatigue just so that we can contrast these two principles and get back to the the theme of the show. But um, it's going to be an ongoing kind of discussion of how these apply, because these, of course, are concepts that would be applied purely and probably were more complex figures than that. So we can probably also point to elements in LeBron's life where he demonstrates a more fatigue. So I just kind of want to point out that we're, we're cherry picking our examples to try and help explain the concepts. Uh, and I think that was a good one this week. Uh, for a more fatigue, uh, Nietzsche talks later in his life about the importance of embracing what comes your way and, and what has constituted your life. He was, even though he um, wasn't treating ressentiment as resentment, he did kind of bash those that, that used ressentiment, especially in the contemporary age, his contemporaries, because he felt like it was a weak way out. Instead of combating the struggles or, or facing the struggles head on and, and enduring them as one's own, he felt like it was a way to shift the burden to others, to get everybody else to play the game your way, and thus to kind of find a cheap way out of of suffering and struggle. And he seemed to prefer uh, a much more uh, head-on embrace of whatever life brings to you. And I just want to read, I don't normally try to do this, but I felt like I wanted to read this one piece from uh, Eka Homo, uh, which is, means Behold the Man. It's kind of like his autobiography. And he says, my formula for greatness in a human being is amorphity, that one wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not in all eternity, not merely to bear what is necessary, still less to conceal it, but to love it. And what I take that to be saying is um, we can so often say, well, if it hadn't been for this, if it hadn't been for my father leaving when I was young, or if it hadn't been for that teacher that gave me an unfairly low grade, I might have been able to succeed in, in my dreams, right? But I mean, I've been held back. And because I've been held back, my life is always going to be lesser than it should have been. And I can be bitter towards those people that represent those things uh, that that I feel cheated my life. And instead, Nietzsche says, amorphity uh, is this principle of, of embracing, like, I wouldn't be who I am without those moments. And not only were they tough, 
but I took them on in the moment and felt the feelings that they brought on. I responded to those situations as who I am and in the way that I could. And as a result, here I am being me in this moment with what I have. Instead of picturing like what could have been or or imagining some more perfect world like a utopia or a heaven, uh, he says, this is my reality. And I am grateful for this reality. I embrace this reality as my own. And here I am in this moment. I'm going to live it. You know, based on what, what you've said here, and I'm definitely the armchair, the couch philosopher in this in this particular dialogue. Um, but, you know, the uh, resentment aspect is kind of like this, it's like a real sort of empowerment of like, you know, because I'm in this situation, if I can just pass the buck onto something else, I can actually like have some control in my life. I think the easy thing to do with amorphity is to take this idea and kind of like force yourself into this sort of empowerment. Like, you know, just trying to understand what amorphity was. I just kept coming across endless and endless discussions of, you know, using this as like a live life every second or embrace every moment. And that does happen with people. They take this as like a second nature kind of approach. But a lot of people actually don't do that. And so it's kind of like a false narrative and a fake approach to, you know, what Nietzsche here is seeing in others. Um, so I think we should caution away from that idea. And uh, you actually brought this up. I thought it was a really fun example was the movie Home Alone, which uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's get into some spoilers for Home Alone for those who haven't seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> Are there if people who have... This Christmas is the perfect Christmas to do it. <laughs> this Christmas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Home Alone, I'll just give a quick, quick synopsis, right? Home Alone... Kevin McAllister gets left in his house. His parents go on vacation with like his whole freaking family. Um, he's left in this house alone for the first few days. For the first like five minutes, he's like, I am like kind of scared. I'm a little 10 year old kid stuck in my house in Chicago. Then he's like, I'm a 10 year old kid stuck in my house in Chicago. And cue montage of him going to the grocery store, watching gangster movies, eating a bowl full of ice cream and cereal, whatever kind of junk food he wants. And lo and behold, there's like criminals in town who are trying to rob every house in the neighborhood because everybody went on vacation. And uh, they come to his house and they put, you know, some fear in him. Uh, they try and scare him out, basically. And again, he takes this attitude of like, you know, I'm the only person here, so I have to defend this house. Cue lots of fun pranks, slipping on ice, hot uh, hot doorknob, <laughs> nail gun to the head, uh, and Kevin emerges victorious. Um, so from your perspective, what about this story embraces the amorphity ideology? Yeah, I think what's what is good about this as an example, and it's tough to find examples. I think Nietzsche himself even thought the embodiment of amorphity is rare. But Kevin um, could blame his situation, of course, on being left, on uh, not being old enough to to do anything, uh, and and really just have a horrible couple of weeks, a nightmare scenario, and. There is suffering, there is hardship. He is left alone, but he also finds um, the ways to embrace what that what those opportunities are. And when the when the thieves come and try to scare him, he doesn't uh, 
just cower and, and follow social norms of calling the police and getting out of there. He says, no, this is on me and I'm going to face it head on. So he uses every every trick and, and aspect that he can to to fight off the robbers. And at one point, he's a 10-year-old boy. It's not enough, right? At one point, he's about to get caught and and then a rescue comes in and, and everything works out. But in every moment that he is experiencing both joy and suffering, he is taking it on fully. He's embracing it wholly. And he's, he's um, I don't want to say he's loving life because there are elements of it that he, that he hates, but he's recognizing the good in the situation and, and just kind of owning it. I have to admit that um, going into this episode, I didn't quite fully understand how Home Alone embraced Amorphatee until I started explaining the plot. And then I realized what a quintessential it is what it is example. And like, and not for the reasons why we dislike it, um, but more for the, for the, you know, I'm stuck in this situation and I have no choice but to embrace it. <clears throat> if I don't embrace this situation, you know, either I'm going to end up dead or my family is going to end up poor or... Yeah, I think that's really good. And, and I'm grateful that you brought it back to the title because we've talked about how it can be used as a sign of resignation or from the powerful, it can kind of be a, a refrain of oppression. But here it's someone in a moment of suffering or in the possible situation of suffering saying, bring it on. This is this is life. And I I choose life. Um, I think so I, I think there's another way to take it is what it is than the way that we've cast it. And I think in perfect, it is what it is flip-flopping. I'm now back on the it is what it is bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, interesting, too, just our personalities. Um, we're really good friends, and we share a lot of the same values, but we seem to approach things, at least I feel like uh, we come at things from kind of a different perspective. And I definitely grew up with and embraced the result mall. Like, I grew up in a very religious household where I was thinking about purity, moral purity, uh, doing what God wanted me to do and judging and criticizing anybody that didn't do that. And even when I um, changed and, and no longer was um, a Christian, I became an atheist and, and kind of embraced the secular worldview, I still believed strongly in morality and this idea of a perfectly just society. And if we could just stop those evildoer capitalists or those evildoer uh, authoritarians, then we could have the right society. And so I've definitely lived my life under the shadow of resentment, and I'm not sure that I'm comfortable getting outside of that shadow. I've I've encountered people that have embraced a more a more fatigue approach, and it scared me. <laughs> like that's not I'm not in my comfort zone when I'm around those people, except with you. <laughs> that's amazing because I was gonna say I've never felt that around me that that you've uh, you know felt uncomfortable. And so I guess just a little backstory here. I think. Uh, as I'm starting to fully understand what amorphity is, I think I would say I have embraced this or I uh, embodied this philosophy. Uh, my dad always was about living in the moment. And I always thought that the way he said it was like this forced philosophy. Um, but I tend to have this attitude of it's more patient and reserved, I guess, is the way that it plays out. But the way I personally live my life is that, you know, I'm if I'm in the present and I'm aware of my surroundings and the opportunities that are around me, I'm more well ready to embrace those opportunities. 
And instead of being like, well, now I'm in the situation that I could have presented, prevented, you know, five minutes ago, I'm, I'm in this situation and there's nothing to do but to embrace it and to move forward from here. I remember um, when we started our food truck, my brother and I, um, it was getting closer and closer. And I kept saying to myself, if I do nothing, I will still end up with a food truck. Because I, I was getting extremely nervous about it opening. You know, we're about to go into business for ourselves. And there's a lot of, you know, our whole livelihood is at stake here. And I was like, <laughs> if I do nothing, I'll still end up with a food truck, which is the same outcome as if I did something. So I might as well do something and try and make the best of it that I can. You know, I don't want to die and I don't want to end up homeless. So I really have no choice. And so I think I I turned the food truck into a whole, you know, Kevin McAllister home alone type situation, equipped with funny videos and knife stories. <laughs> <laughs> and and time and time again, I see you not fold under pressure, um, not even sure. I'm sure you feel the pressure, but you don't show it. And uh, while maybe a form of uh, morphity is not exactly stoicism, there are a lot of similarities. And I think this, um, you you look at the situa situation and say, well, what can I do with, with what we've got? And instead of worrying about what could have been or, or how things might be another way, you just make the best of every situation. And it's pretty admirable. Which I think is kind of like what these two ideologies are all about is like the response to the stimuli that are around you. What What's your environment and how are you going to handle the situation? And in both cases, it's all about, you know, you know, whether you own it through, uh, pass you know passing the blame sort of say to something so that you can get yourself out of the situation or you just own it and say you know i have control and i can do something about it either way it is what it is so we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors today's resentment and amor fatigue dialogue brought to you by nietzsche frederick nietzsche there's one of him for all of you since everyone's interpretation is different and he's the king of the Hang in there, kitty posters. Get yours at a bookstore near you.